Though I won't begin with reading the scripture this morning, the prayer of our heart should be the same, that when we come to the scripture in the sermon and even the sermon itself, that the Lord would use his word to teach us his way, that he would give us an undivided heart that we may fear his name. It's been an intense time in Isaiah. You can't take scripture seriously and conclude anything other than the reality of God's judgment against sin and sinners. And people who find their security in anything but God will ultimately find themselves completely insecure. But Isaiah tells us this often, that this message of judgment that resounds throughout his book is for now a warning. It's not too late. It's a call to repent. For those who hear this call and turn to God in faith, there is incredible salvation. And trusting in him, our salvation is as certain as secure as is God's wrath against sin. Now, last week, from these same chapters, we considered the many who pretend not to know that God will judge. And this happens not just out there in the world. It happens sometimes in here, in the church. And when God is calling us away from ourselves and back to himself, we all need to be listening carefully and responding in repentance. This morning, we'll consider how often we also forget not just his judgment, but his salvation. And when we do, we're laying aside the best tool that we have to help us persevere in a fallen and difficult world. Take, for example, chapter 14, starting in verse 4. How the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. We've read a lot of texts like that, and we'll read more throughout these chapters and all of Scripture. In times of difficulty, God's people speak specifically about his salvation. Hear that God put down my enemies. God delivered me. God brought me new life where there seemed to be none. And when God's people remember these promises, there's a rather common next step. Verse 7, the whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you, the cedars of Lebanon. The natural next step of this kind of contemplation, really thinking about what God has done, is what we call doxology, words of praise. And here, the praise of God even includes a taunt of God's enemies. First, it's Babylon saying, since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. Sheol rouses the shades to greet you. All who are leaders of the earth, all of them will answer and say, you too have become weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down 
to Sheol. There's a repeated contrast throughout this text between what God's enemies think the future holds and what God will actually bring to pass in history. Babylon oppressed, they ruled and struck the people. And so in their power, in their success, they thought they could escape death. They thought they could, the text says, be forever strong and revel in evil. What would actually happen is that the Lord will break the staff of the wicked and lay them low. God is saving his people. But when God's people think about his salvation and praise flows forth in response, there's a much more important enemy than Babylon, isn't there? God doesn't just save us from wicked kings, from difficult earthly circumstances. He saves us from the enemy of our souls. That's verses 12 through 21, which begins, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut to the ground, you who laid the nations low. And you notice in this passage that Satan's folly, which is taunted, is the same as Babylon. It's the same as all of God's enemies. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. That's always the plan of the godless, to make themselves gods. Satan's plan was to use God's creation against him, to make himself God. But God is saving his people. Verse 15, to Satan, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble? I know there are many times when it does not feel as if the righteous are winning. And that's why God gives us these promises. And that's why God's people have always held these promises close, remembering and repeating them in times of trouble. There are many enemies. There is no enemy that will get the best of you. Here Judah is looking ahead to judgment, siege, and exile. And yet the remnant are secure in the knowledge that God is saving his people. That's why there are so many passages here and elsewhere where God's people remember and repeat the praise of his goodness. And I think perhaps our problem, or part of it, is that we tend not to get specific enough. When we aren't altogether forgetting, we may think of God's salvation in general. But what would be really helpful is to remember some of the specific blessings that belong to us in salvation. I think that's especially true in moments where those blessings themselves seem so far off when what we're experiencing feels almost like the opposite of what God has promised. Let me give you two this morning to consider from these chapters of Isaiah. The first is how God's salvation brings total reconciliation. In this life, relationships are marred by sin. They're so often out of sorts. And yes, by God's grace, there's forgiveness and reconciliation available even now, but boy, we need to pursue it really often, don't we? 
And in this life, we're not always reconciled. We're estranged from some. We're uneasy with others. When it comes to our relationships, not all is well. And if that's true of individuals, how much more of people groups? <laughs> there's, there's a lot of hurt and difficulty grounded in class and political and racial tension. We live in a world that has been deeply divided since the fall. Yet God is saving his people. Look ahead to chapter 19. I'll start with verse 21, but I'm going to convince, uh, condense this text a bit to highlight the point. Starting in 1921. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. And that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. When God reconciles us to himself, he also reconciles us one to another in ways we can't even fathom. He calls out to his people to turn to him. And when they do, that turning leads inevitably to worship. And the fruit of worship of God is love for one another. We see that even now. Even now, don't you find it difficult to worship sincerely when you're out of sorts with someone else in your row or in the church? How could we worship sincerely side by side with someone we despise? This is why God brings reconciliation. He turns us away from ourselves and toward him. And as he unites us one to another, then our worship goes forth in unity. There are a few times I think we need this more than when we're experiencing the difficulties of broken relationships and alienation in this life. That's when we need to remember that God is saving his people and even now, in him, we can be reconciled to all who are in him. And there will be a day when he reconciles all of us in him fully. We don't deny that sinful racism, sexism, elitism, educationism, and all the other isms exist in this world. But the sinful distinctions so pervasive now in our hearts are being burned away. And there's comfort in the good news that this peace from reconciliation will be ours because of what God has done for us in Christ. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. A second specific blessing that is ours in God's salvation is the elimination of shame. While in this life, shame is one of the tools that God uses for our good, he does so only to direct us to the one who will ultimately take away all of our shame forever. We see this, for example, in chapter 20. 
Here, God uses shame, as he sometimes does with the prophets, in a pretty dramatic way. Starting in verse 2, kids, listen carefully to this craziness. At that time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and Egypt their boast. The context is how many of the Israelites wanted Judah to make an alliance with Egypt to protect them from Syria. That is, they were looking for salvation from not God, Egypt, rather than God. And to get their attention, to get them to remember and repeat his promises, Isaiah is called to strip down to his underwear and wear only that before the people for three years. Were I forced to do that, my shame that I didn't spend more time in the gym would be evident. But it's Egypt's shame, not Isaiah's, that is the object of this lesson. There's a side point there that no matter what the world and the devil try to tell us, there is no shame in obedience to God. The world will try to make you ashamed of what you believe and what you do following God. There is no shame in that. What Isaiah is doing, even this this madness, it seems embarrassing. But God says it's Egypt who will experience real shame as they, uncovered and exposed, are led away into slavery. God can put shame to use in our lives for prophetic purposes as well. Much of the shame we experience is because of sin, choosing not God rather than God. And shame is the Holy Spirit leading us to repentance. Through that shame, we're moved to seek forgiveness and restoration and new obedience. We don't want to feel ashamed, so we turn from our sin and back toward God. Shame caused by our behavior Seems like it's easy to deal with on our own. Just stop doing the behavior. But we all know that's not true. That actually uncovers the real issue. We think we can save ourselves. We may even project that to others. We think we have all the answers and have it all put together. And we project that. But inside that shame is when we know it's not working. It's when we see and admit, try as hard as we can, that we cannot change ourselves because our problem is not behavior. It's condition. From the beginning, Adam and Eve were without clothes. But it was only after the fall that they were ashamed. Genesis 2.25, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed, gives way to Genesis 3.8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Deep, debilitating shame is not about behavior 
It's the condition that we're in apart from God's salvation. It's what makes the question of Isaiah 20 verse 6 so powerful. Behold, this has happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? My plans didn't work. My idols didn't save me. I'm coming up short. How will we escape? Despite what so many people today think, the shame-inducing problem isn't our circumstances. It's our condition. That's why we can't take away shame just by changing our behavior or our circumstances. It's why Satan tries to convince us that shame can never be removed, that the sins of the past are too great, that our continuing sin reveals our false hearts. He wants us to doubt that God can and really does deal with the problem of shame. But God says in his promises that he will take away shame because in saving his people, he addresses the condition that causes it. Later in chapter 54, God will say, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. You will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. If you're trying to be free of shame, don't put your hope in Egypt. Remember and repeat the promises of God. Now, God's salvation is clearly established. It's clearly glorious. We need to do more work remembering and repeating the details. But it's here. We know it. So why then do we struggle to remember and repeat? Why is it so hard for us to lay hold of these promises in our hardest moments, the moments when we need them most? The answer is because this salvation is yet to come in full. It's fully achieved, but it's not yet fully realized in us. We want to remember, we want to be like God's people in chapter 14 with the confidence to praise God, even to taunt his defeated enemies. We want to sing the song of chapter 26, praising God for the strong city he's given us, the overthrow of the haughty and the proud. But look at chapter 26. Even it admits, how does it begin? In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. Judah has God's promises. We have more. God's promises fulfilled in Christ and the proof of the resurrection. All of God's people can rejoice in the impact that his salvation has even now on our lives. The, the reconciliation we can enjoy through forgiveness. The shame that he's already taken away. We see the first fruits of his promises in us. 
But as in Judah, we rejoice as those who are seeing a promise that is coming to pass, not a promise that has been received in full. For that, we wait. You've experienced a lot of waiting, haven't you? When we're young, we're told to wait patiently for the direction of our lives to unfold. Unmarried, we're told to wait patiently for the joy of marriage. Married, for the sanctification of our spouse. Parents, for the maturation of their children. A faithful church, for the growth in number and influence. We wait, we wait, and we wait, living in that constant state of anticipation. And perhaps you've found that no matter how joyful the promised outcome may be, the waiting, the anticipation of joy isn't itself so joyful. Chapter 26 is filled with waiting language. Promises for that day. And remembering and repeating those promises can give comfort and joy now, but we must wait with patience. Verse 1, in that day the song will be sung. Verse 8, in the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Verse 12, you will ordain peace for us. Verse 21, the Lord is coming. God's people have always lived within this tension of waiting, knowing the song that will be sung. Occasionally, we shift that song into into the present tense as kind of a plea for God to bring about these things because what we're living through now seems so far from them. Verse 9, my soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. Last week, Kathy and I were having a conversation about a difficult situation. And in the end, the only thing either of us could conclude was, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We're waiting. We're waiting confidently. We're waiting with hope, but but waiting is hard. We need to remember and repeat, because waiting is hard. It's extra hard when we're trusting in something we don't See is coming. You know, I remember plenty of times in my childhood when my dad had told me we were going to go do something fun. And I had every reason to believe him. My dad didn't break his promises. But throughout the day, watching him, the doubts would start to creep in. It seemed like he was doing all this other stuff. It didn't seem like he was getting ready. It didn't seem like anything that was happening was moving us closer to the outcome that I was promised. And I'd get anxious. It didn't seem like we were getting ready to leave, that we were getting any closer. We need to remember and repeat. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We need to remember and repeat because waiting is difficult. 
It's, it's more difficult if we don't believe that what we're waiting for is worth it. You know the expression that somebody can be so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good? I got to tell you, I've met very few of those people. <laughs> My experience is quite the opposite. Most of us have the opposite problem. We're so consumed with life down here, we never think about eternity. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. Don't raise your hands. How often can you honestly say that about God? I can tell you about all the other things on my mind. The work we're doing here at this church, the decisions that we're trying to make for the children for the years ahead, the home improvement projects I want to get started. But what of his kingdom? Is it on my mind? Does my soul yearn? We get consumed with the needs of the here and the now that aren't unimportant, but in them we can easily lose sight of the things of highest value. When Jesus tells us, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or drink or wear? What does he suggest as the alternative? But seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness and all these things will be added. We need to remember and repeat. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. We need to remember and repeat. But according to his promise, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We need to remember and repeat. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither there shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. Remember and repeat. Our growth focus this quarter is patience. Our memory focus begins, be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. In World War II, the UK government undertook the now famous media campaign to try and boost morale. And they came up with all these catchy slogans that they put on posters. And the most widely known today, of course, being keep calm and carry on. It's good advice. It's good advice in wartime, and perhaps because it's good advice for Christians waiting for the fulfillment of God's salvation. It's not far from Isaiah 26.3. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. We keep calm, our minds at perfect peace. Peace, not because of some mind-over-matter psychobabble. We keep calm because the Prince of Peace rules our hearts. Remembering and repeating his promises, even the things of this world cannot distract or consume our thoughts. We keep calm. And we carry on. Isaiah says it, 26 verse 7. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. Walking in faith 
and obedience, we can see the finish line. It's not easy to get to, but even the diversions of trials and difficulties don't change our focus. With our eyes firmly set on Christ, we persevere through innumerable difficulties. We remember and we repeat our eyes fixed on him, carrying on, running the race. We're being reconciled. Our shame is being taken away. We will live in perfect peace. God is saving his people. Christians, especially you young people whose minds are still sharp and it's much easier for you to remember things, Store up these promises in your hearts. You're going to need them. Remember and repeat them. Let them be an encouragement to you in dark and challenging times. And may you use them to be an encouragement to others. We talk a lot about the need to remember what God has done. And that's true. And while we're at it, let's also remember what God will do. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.